that that we don't need to go into cancer as a, as a helpless victim that just sort of says, okay, doc, do me what you want, you know? And we don't need to go into it as a warrior that's like in battle mode all, all the time because that's incredibly stressful. Hi, I'm Dr. Morgan Nolte, geriatric physical therapist, weight loss coach, and passionate disease prevention expert. I used to struggle with emotional eating, sugar cravings, and consistency. Then I learned how to lose the mental and physical weight once and for all with a low insulin lifestyle. Each week on the Reshape Your Health podcast, you'll learn simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies to help you do the same. If you're ready to create a body and life you love, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Reshape Your Health podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Nolte, and today I'm really excited to introduce you to Martha Tettenborn. She's a registered dietitian and certified primal, primal health coach with over 30 years of experience working in many different areas of nutrition. And currently she works in long-term care with a focus on nursing homes and gerontology. So fellow geriatric clinician, love it. I love getting to talk about that with her today. Um, Her private health coach practice, the cancer doula promotes a low carb whole foods based approach to disease prevention and cancer symptom management. So her story is really interesting. So when she was diagnosed with stage one ovarian cancer, Martha began exploring the research of disease and discovered the science of cancer metabolism. This led her to develop and use a protocol of ketogenic diet with targeted therapeutic fasting to significantly impact her response to chemotherapy. And inspired by her own journey, Martha wants to help others see cancer differently as an experience that will give you strength, wisdom, and more love for your body and life than ever before. Her experience, strategies, and resources, plus the science behind them, are outlined in her book, Hacking Chemo, Using Ketogenic Diet, Therapeutic Fasting, and a Kick-Ass Attitude to Power Through Cancer. A featured speaker at the Low Carb Long Weekend Summit and on numerous podcasts, Martha shares her experience and knowledge as a dietitian and cancer patient to inform others about the power of metabolic interventions to support conventional cancer treatment. Martha also instructs courses teaching the ketogenic approach to cancer treatment um, for the Nutrition Network and Udemy. So a cancer survivor since 2018, Martha is an an avid hiker, cyclist, live theater backstage crew member, and a wannabe world adventurer. She lives on the beautiful Bruce Peninsula in central Ontario, Canada with her husband, Mike, a noisy cocktail. I think I pronounced that right. Named Ziggy and a flock of backyard chickens. And you can learn more about her on her blog and website at marthatattenborn.com. And I just really quick, I usually don't read people's full bios, but I had to read yours because of that last line with like the backyard chickens and all that. I, I think that you're (laughs) going to be so fun to talk to, um, because no one's really told me about their backyard chickens yet. So I am so, so just excited to hear your story more. And I love getting registered dietitians on the show to talk about evidence-based nutrition let's kind of start with that. Start with, you know, what did you learn in school as a dietitian, a registered dietitian, and how has your practice changed since then 
um, with updated evidence? Well, I'm old. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I went to university in the early 1980s, and that was exactly the time when the McGovern Commission was looking at nutrition for Americans and the low-fat guidelines were developed for all Americans, which, of course, you know, bled across the border into Canada and every other English-speaking first-world type, you know, developed country. Um, And so this was considered cutting-edge science at the time that, you know, cholesterol was causing heart disease and eggs were bad and dietary cholesterol was bad and low-fat was going to save us all. And it was being promoted for the entire population, which was crazy. Um, But that That was how I went to university between 80 and 84. And then I did an internship after that. Um, And I probably practiced the first 15 years, maybe even 20 years of my practice using those principles as much as, you know, that was how everybody did it. And um, I can honestly say I really wasn't that successful um, in helping people. Um, and I, you know, I had two kids during that time and I struggled with, you know, 20 or 30 extra pounds beyond what I wished I had. Um, they've never been an impact on my health, but they have always been there. And cosmetically, I was annoyed with them, but I struggled. I could not get that weight off for years. Um, so it was about 2007, I guess, when I started um, thinking outside the box and looking at some other kind of crazy n equals one experiment type things and that's when i started to realize that fat was not the enemy and that um that there was this satiety in in eating fat that wasn't there and flavor oh my god the flavor compared to eating low fat um and i mean we ate a pretty standard uh north american diet Um, with some processed foods and some treats. And, you know, I love to bake with my boys and stuff like that. Um, So it was, it was probably only in about 2010 or 2013 that I started um, realizing that, that maybe there's another way to do this. And that's when I started looking into, um, I found Mark Sisson and uh, Mark's Daily Apple and you know, kind of threw myself headfirst into the world of low carb. Um, He had very active forums um, on his website back in the day. And uh, so I was very involved there. And and that's what really um, sent me down a whole different path than the standard dietitian. Um, My day job still uses the regular guidelines and the regular you know, the regular legislations and so on um, in long-term care. But, uh, but what I do in my private practice and what I do in my own life um, is very much now focused on a less processed, uh, lower carbohydrate, uh, whole foods-based, animal foods-based um, type of, of lifestyle. Yeah. And I want you to just walk us through your journey with cancer, with ovarian cancer and how you kind of stumbled upon research that would support this therapeutic fasting. Um, and we were talking offline too. How did you balance that with maintaining weight? Because a lot of times when people go through cancer treatments, there's a real concern about weight loss and wasting. And so what did you find to be most successful 
And then what were some of the resources and research that you looked to as you kind of develop this protocol? Well, I was, um, I was absolutely gobsmacked, hit out of the blue uh, with a cancer diagnosis because I was 58 years old and I was as healthy as a horse, nothing ached. I took zero medications. Uh, I was really smug about the fact that I was healthy, actually. And, um, and that was very much my identity professionally was that I wanted to help people with healthy, awesome aging. That was my private practice. That was my niche, my shtick, you know? Mm -hmm. And then um, one day I discovered a really large lump in my abdomen and I had to go have it uh, uh, ultrasound examined. And it turned out to be a large ovarian cyst. It was already about 15 centimeters across when I found it. So that's about six inches. Um, and, uh, it was just a big fluid filled cyst. Um, they did a bit of lab work. Nobody thought it was cancer. Absolutely nobody. So, um, this was the middle of summer and in Ontario, summers are pretty short. And, uh, so it was the end of September before I got my ducks in a row and I got in for surgery to have this cyst removed. And we made the decision. I made the decision to have the cyst removed laparoscopically. So little tiny incision, um, you know, poke in an instrument, deflate this cyst, like suck all the fluid out of it, and then pull the, the sort of empty balloon out of the, the little hole. And, um, that was all fine and good. Six days later, they called me and said, the surgeon wants to see you come tomorrow morning, bring your husband. Okay. I know what that means. And it's not good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that was kind of how the the journey started. Um, And because I was already a low carb focused uh, dietitian with my private practice and everything, Um, And because I had a really good appreciation for the power of nutrition to really impact on your health, which I think a lot of dietitians honestly don't. Um, um, So I went, I went online, I went to Dr. Google, and I went looking for information about cancer. And, um, and that's when I discovered that there's this, uh, this thing called cancer metabolism that I literally did not know existed. Uh, my training and the training that we've all gotten for 50 years was that cancer was a metabolic disease. It was about disordered um, and damaged DNA in your cells. And, uh, and that, you know, nobody ever talked about it having an impact on metabolism or fueling. So wait, that it wasn't. So you learned just to clarify that it was not a metabolic disease, that it was just related to DNA. Is that what you learned? Oh, yeah. Okay. And I mean, the only thing that dietitians were really taught about cancer was to help people not lose weight, because of the impact of the cancer and or the the side effects of the treatment. So you know, we had what the commercial nutritional supplement products like Enger and boost and those sorts of things, or, you know, recipes for milkshakes and and then what we called our high energy high protein diet, which was basically just a really calorie dense um, way of eating. So in other words, if you had one piece of toast, you could add on to that piece of toast, a tablespoon of butter and a tablespoon of peanut butter and some honey. And you know, you could make one piece of toast into 400 calories if you had enough things on top. Mm -hmm. But it was all sugar and, and, you know, so basically, intensive sugar, intensive fats to try and get the calories up. That was all we had. And I just that wasn't good enough for me. 
And so I went looking and that's when I discovered that there's actually some research that supports the fact that cancer metabolizes differently and um, that it's not, it's not the same as healthy cells. Um, And this information has been known for over a hundred years, but it got lost and is now just being, um, just being rediscovered again in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, I know that Dr. Jason Fung wrote a book called the cancer code, and I'd be really interested to read that one. I haven't, but I think in it, he does talk about this metabolic aspect of cancer cells and how they're different than regular cells. Can you go into that just a little bit? What do you mean by they're a little different than regular cells regarding their metabolism? Yeah, it's interesting. Jason's book came out the week before mine did in no way. (laughs) Yeah, I knew he was writing a book about cancer because I went into his uh, business partner down at a conference. So I knew that his next book was going to be about cancer, which was kind of cool, but it turned out that we, we published in the same month. Um, So, yeah. So metabolism is just the word that, that describes how a cell uh, uses energy. And um, when you're talking about metabolism, you're talking about fuel. And when you're talking about fuel, you're talking about food and you're back to my shtick again, right? Mm-hmm. So when I discovered that, um, that there was something different about how cancer cells metabolized, and I'll go into that in a sec, I, I just knew that there was probably things that we could do nutritionally that would make a difference. So um, yeah, so I, I started reading everything I could get, including um, the, the studies on Uh, low carb and ketogenic diets and on fasting. Um, Because basically what they have discovered, what they discovered 100 years ago um, in Germany was that cancer, um, the mitochondria of cancer cells does not work the way healthy cells does. That the mitochondria are the little organelles inside the cells that actually um, house the, the chemical pathway that releases energy from the cell and they are damaged in cancer cells. So cancer uses a different metabolic process called fermentation, and it takes place in the cytoplasm or the the fluid of the cell. And it's a very instant um, release of energy. We all all have it, we have it all the time. If you um, have a fight or flight response, you know, an adrenaline response, the instant energy that's there in your muscles to run away from the saber tooth tiger, whatever it is that, you know, is your, your stressor, um, that uses cytoplasmic fermentation, like boom, you have energy instant, right? So all of our cells can do it, but most of them choose not to, it's not a very clean burning process. It's not a very efficient process. Um, but it is fast energy and it only uses really glucose, a little bit of glutamine sometimes, but mostly it's a glucose based, um, or blood, you know, sugar based uh, process. So cancer cells use this as their main energy source. So they are always looking for glucose. They have extra insulin receptors on their cell surface. They are always hungry for um, blood glucose. So when you eat in a way that keeps your blood glucose low, you actually um, can have an impact on how happy that cancer cell is and whether it's getting what it needs for growth. And of course, cancer cells have uncontrolled growth. That's one of the hallmarks of cancer. 
They don't have an off switch. They don't have a way to downregulate when the fuel source is low or anything like healthy cells do. Um, so they get really um, hangry. <laughs> <laughs> hangry is a good term for the cancer cells, I think. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I think that you explain that really well. And I think that knowing that cancer cells feed on sugar, they have extra insulin receptors. And we talk about insulin resistance all the time on the show. Um, the insulin lets glucose into the cell. So it's almost like they might have, you know, 20, 20 doors on a cell on a cancer cell, whereas a regular one might have 10. They're like, please come here, sugar. We want you, we want Mm, you. And so I think let's back it up even a step further. I have a really well-educated audience and we talk about macronutrients. However, I think that it's important to explain, you know, why this higher protein, higher healthy fat fiber, whole foods approach actually works to keep that cancer growth, you know, at bay or lower than it would be if you were eating sugar, starch, refined sugar. So can you just break that down just a little bit more for people Mm -hmm. that maybe are coming to this show new and they don't have an understanding of macronutrients yet? Sure. So, um, when, when we eat, we're getting our calories from three main sources, protein, carbohydrates, and fats. Carbohydrates break are in the form of sugar and starch for the most part. Those are the ones that we can actually digest and absorb. And they all become blood sugar eventually, um, except the fructose, which becomes fat. But um, we have blood sugar circulating in our blood all the time. You can't not have blood sugar. There is no zero blood sugar. You would die. But um, we all have this sugar that, and it fluctuates depending on what we're eating and how much is being released from our stores and that kind of thing. Um, So when cancer cells are really hungry, it's not like you can't, you can't turn off the insulin and you can't turn off the sugar, but you can make it really low in your blood Um, and very low and stable. So there are no spikes like after meals and stuff. And you can do that by following a really low carb diet. Um, The, the reason, a lot of the research on this has been done by Dr. Thomas Seyfried in Boston and his lab has looked at cancer cells and how they metabolize um, in depth. And he has proposed what he calls the press pulse theory. And so when you eat a really low carb diet, and you're keeping your blood sugar really low and you're keeping your insulin levels really low because the insulin is not responding to dietary sources, right? Um, Then you you put pressure on those cancer cells. They are not happy. They cannot get what they need for uncontrolled growth, which is their um, imperative. Like they they have no ability to not want to grow. Um, So you put this pressure on them and then while they're while they hit them while they're down sort of thing and you pulse them with a treatment of some sort so basically you kind of weaken them and then you hit them with something so the the something could be chemotherapy could be radiation could be hyperbaric oxygen like there's a lot of you know alternative things that are coming up these days um my experience was with traditional chemotherapy and uh and so that's the one that I'm the most comfortable talking about. But, um, but this idea that 
cancer doesn't want um, doesn't want your blood sugar to be low and stable. It doesn't want your insulin to be low and stable. Um, and and you can impact on that very directly by what you choose to put in your mouth, which is a, really powerful. <laughs> it is. I have a quick question. So um, I've heard that if you, for every hundred grams of protein, you know, 50 or 60 of those can turn into glucose. And I didn't know if you had any specific experience personally or professionally uh, with, with people or with recommending like more of a moderate protein, uh, regimen during this specific phase. Um, or if we know that protein does stimulate insulin a little bit, maybe not blood sugar, but insulin, what's your thought on that? Like with the body making new glucose, you know, from sources and specifically from protein. Um, if, if you're consuming a low enough carbohydrate intake, then your body will generally produce ketones out of um, the alternate fuel sources. I wouldn't say anybody needs a super high protein diet. Mm-hmm. Um, that moderate protein, um, and, and I mean that will be—I I can't put a number on it because everybody's different, right? right. And their situation's different. But um, but a moderate protein enough that you maintain your muscles. Um, and that you maintain, you know, your enzymes and the other processes that are going on in your body, um, but not super excessive. Cause you're right. If, if you eat a super excessive amount, some of that will, um, will get the nitrogen removed from the amino acids and it'll turn into a sugar or a pyruvate or something that is like a sugar, mm-hmm. um, metabolite. So yeah, it, it could be that you have, you know, the other thing is, and I'm not an expert on this, but high, high protein will stimulate mTOR, which is a growth factor, which can right. then support cancer growth. So, um, so generally um, what I did and what I kind of, you know, and based on the evidence and the research that I was able to do um, was to follow a, a strict ketogenic diet for the entire time that I was in chemotherapy. Um, so that was about five or six months. And, um, and then to fast around each specific chemo treatment to further that, that metabolic pressure that I was putting on the the cancer cells. And can you just, Um, for those who don't know what a ketogenic diet is regarding percentages of macronutrients, can you just break that down? Like what percentage of your calories came from, um, carbohydrates versus protein versus fat on like that strict keto that you were talking about? So I'm not a big one for numbers. Uh, like okay. for yeah. Um, I was keeping my carbs below about 30 grams a day. Okay. And um, not focusing on much else besides the whole foods, but focusing on the net, net carbs or total carbs, net carbs. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so net I carbs. was looking gotcha. to have enough, a low enough carbohydrate intake to have um, at least a modest amount of ketones in my system all the time. I wasn't deeply in ketosis, okay. um, but I was looking to be, you know, at least on the edge of ketosis all the way. And um, I love details. So did you use like a ketone reader? And then what was your goal? Cause I think like that mild nutritional ketosis, I think is like a 0.4, maybe like more advanced ketosis might be like a one, two. So yeah. what, what was your goal? So I had a precision, um, 
Precision Extra, I think it's called uh, Ketone Meter from Abbott. Unfortunately, Keto Mojo is not available in Canada yet. <sighs> That's the one I use. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it sounds wonderful, but it, it, they haven't got any sort of distribution in Canada yet. So, um, so yeah, so I was using the keto sticks once to twice a day okay. and I was aiming for anywhere from 0.3 and up sort okay. of thing. So up to, you know, 0.8 when I fasted, it would, it would go really high. Of course. Yeah. But, um, but while I was eating, it was generally below one or just around one. Okay. Um, and you know, sometimes in the morning with the dawn effect and stuff, it would be like 0.3. Yeah. And so that's super doable for people that haven't checked their ketones or if they're listening and they're like, okay, that, that sounds a little scary. It's really not. And especially if you mm -hmm. learn how to do it, um, you know, in a way that's sustainable, it's like, it's really good food that you get to eat too, <laughs> to, oh to be gosh, able to yeah. be in ketosis. Yeah. So I just wanted to point that out that, you know, 0.3 isn't that far into ketosis and she still, you know, definitely, I think probably saw benefits. And so you did this for the duration of time that you were in chemo. Will you talk a little bit more about the strategically timed fasting around your chemo treatments, um, the research behind that and what you experience, what your patients experience? when they fast, because this is so important. And I think that people, when they get diagnosed with cancer, kind of feel out of control and kind of at the bay of their doctors. And I, I wish that every single oncologist would share this information with their patients, because why wouldn't we want our conventional treatments to be more effective? Exactly. So when I found out that I was going to need chemotherapy, um, because of the type of cancer, it was a stage one, but because they ruptured it in, inside my belly, um, it was considered a spill. And so it was highly recommended that I get chemo. And so there, there was no tumor there that I was trying to shrink or anything. We were chasing rogue, potentially rogue cancer cells. Right. Um, so I, I knew that, that there was probably things that I could do I hoped there was things I could do to reduce the severity of the side effects because I was terrified of chemotherapy. It's poison. It's basically poison that's designed to kill the cancer before it kills the patient. Mm -hmm. Right. And it, you know, the, it's a fairly blunt weapon. It is usually some sort of drug that is designed to target the, the processes of growth and cell division. So it's looking for fast metabolizing cells, cells that are looking for energy and all that right. kind of stuff. Right. So if you, what, what I sort of discovered in my research and a lot of th this work has been done by Dr. Walter Longo in California, yep. who's the, he's a longevity kind of specialist. Yes. He's also a gerontologist. Um, but he did work on fasting in chemotherapy. And one of the things he proved is that it does not uh, limit the effectiveness of the chemo at all. Um, cause that was important. You don't want to make the chemo less effective. Right. Right. And secondly, he, um, he determined that it made the chemo more effective on the cancer cells because of, and again, it goes back to this press pulse type idea where you're pressuring the cells by not giving them what they need and then pulsing them with a treatment. So, um, the, uh, but the other thing, the thing that's really important is the effect that fasting has on your healthy cells. 
not your kids. Oh, this is an interesting, an interesting take on it. Yeah. Talk about that. Because the reason you have side effects is because you have some parts of your body as an adult, we don't have a lot of parts of our body that are in an active growth phase, right? But we do have some, and those are the first thing to get hit with chemotherapy side effects because they're exhibiting those, those, you know, rapid growth sort of signals, right? So that's things like our hair follicles, which are always growing and producing new tissue. Um, the bone marrow in our blood, in our, in our bones is all always producing blood components, like our immune system and our red blood cells and our white blood cells and our platelets. Um, so that's an active growth area. And then the lining of our digestive tract right from the mouth through to the other end is always sloughing off. And like, it's, so it's a, a rapid growth area as well. So those are the sort of the, the three main ones. Um, and when you look at the list of side effects, that's where a lot of the side effects happen, right? Yeah. So, you know, that's why you lose your hair. I lost my hair. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, it, it came back. <laughs> um, but if you can quiet down those healthy cells, then the, the chemo doesn't find them the same way. Mm. I call it stealth mode. The cells. Oh, I like that. Yeah. When you fast, your body kind of goes, okay, no fuel coming in. All right. We're going to settle down. We're just going to go into kind of a maintenance mode and we'll do some housekeeping. That's the autophagy that we talk about, you know, where they're cleaning up um, and breaking down damaged proteins and things like, so they're, in other words, they're using what they've got in their, their own stores inside their cell, but they, they quiet down. And so if you can strategically do that, right. When you're getting the chemo, then all of these sort of the instant side effects of the chemo, the, the short term stuff um, tends to be less. It's like, I, I, I could say, like, I, I call it stealth mode and the chemo just kind of flies right over them and heads for those cancer cells that have big re- flashing red lights on them, you know, the kind of go pick me, pick me. And I know that, you know, this, this was kind of the theory based on the research from Dr. Longo and the research from Dr. Seyfried and, um, and Dr. Shank, Adrian Shank, she's done work with um, radiation and brain tumors and keto diets um, in children. And so I'd, I'd read a lot of these things. And, uh, and so I put it into practice for myself because nobody had really kind of laid it out as being this, this exact kind of protocol and kind of figured out that it's not only about what you do to the cancer cells, it's about what you do to the healthy cells. Yeah. Right. So my protocol based on the work of Dr. Longo was to go 36 hours prior to chemo. I went into a, a a fast. Now it wasn't a water only fast. In my case, it was was my next question. (laughs) Yeah, It was a supported fast. So I used black coffee, um, black tea, and I had about two, maybe two cups of bone broth um, on the day before chemo, just because at that point, my appetite was pretty good. and so the bone broth gives you salt of course and and it feel it's warm I mean we're talking winter in Ontario I needed warm drinks right yeah um so um and then the day of chemo I would just have coffee and tea usually the day after chemo um I would go for another 24 hours past the end of my chemotherapy and my treatment because it was part um intravenous and part intraperitoneal in other words, mm-hmm. they, they dumped the second chemo drug basically directly into my pelvic cavity with a, with a tube. And so, um, so it was, it was about six, seven hours of in the chemo suite. It was a long time. 
Um, so the following day I would stay fasted until basically the supper of the next night. Um, so that was another 24 hours after the end of chemo, just to keep those cells really quiet. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was actually a really wonderful feeling because it felt like I was protecting myself Yeah, by, by fasting, you know, and it was almost, I I was looking forward to that first meal after three days without eating, but I also felt like I was giving up something in terms of the protection, you know? Yeah. And I think at first glance hearing, oh my goodness, a 72 hour fast, but it's like what you give up, you know, three days of food is nothing in comparison to what you gain in avoiding some of those more severe side effects. Right. Yes. In my experience. Okay. And I will say right now that I'm an N equals one experiment. Mm -hmm. And I will also say that I refused to be my own control group. So in other words, I did not do a chemo where I was eating ad lib through the chemotherapy. I just went like, screw that. I'm doing this for all six treatments. And so each treatment is supposed to be cumulatively worse than the one before. Okay. I had almost no nausea ever. I had no vomiting ever. Um, I had, um, you know, kind of about four days of sort of low energy. And then on the fifth day, my energy would start coming back up. And then I'd have two weeks of almost normal. Now I was bald. I mean, the, the second week factors of chemotherapy, because the drug stays in your system for a long time. Right. 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 Second week factors, like it affected your hair and it affects your bone marrow. But so my, my blood values would drop after each cycle, but they would always bounce back enough that I could have the next treatment at its full volume. Uh, You know, and we never had to adjust it or anything on low immune system or anything. Right. Um, And I never required Nuprogen or any of the immune supporting drugs to help me through that. So basically for the, the, you know, two and a half weeks between treatments, when I was feeling good, I was on nothing. You know, there was no in between drugs. There was nothing. It was, it was, um, you know, I I wasn't running marathons or anything, but I, you know, I went out snowshoeing and I was working a couple of days a week and, um, you know, I had, I had really good energy Mm -hmm. for the in-between times. And I never missed a meal that I didn't choose to miss, like during the fasting. And in fact, I never missed making a meal because in my house, that's my, my responsibility. And I like it that way. So, I mean, I would, you know, get out of my recliner and I I might just cook bacon and eggs for Mike and I, but, you know, um, and then when I was done, I'd climb back into my recliner, (laughs) but you know, it was, it was for me important that I be still in charge of that. Yeah, that you maintain at least some level of normalcy for a couple of weeks before the, the before the next round of chemo. Okay. Even during chemo, I like I say, other than the days that I fasted yeah. for those, you know, four days after, I I was never um, significantly nauseous. And in fact, the drugs that they give you around chemo, like the dexamethasone and the and the uh, anti nausea drugs, every treatment I was able to take less of those than I did the treatment before. So by the time I got to the sixth treatment, I wasn't taking anything after the day of chemo. Mm-hmm. I, want, I wanted to ask you about the weight loss because you talked about this offline and I'm sure someone listening to this with a loved one, or maybe that they themselves are facing a, a cancer diagnosis and they're concerned about weight loss. Cause everyone's telling them you need to maintain your weight. You need to maintain your weight. 
And in their mind, that means, okay, I need to eat all the time. How do you speak to that? How do you speak about maintaining your weight while balancing that with a strategic intermittent fasting for chemo? Yeah. So for a lot of the hormone dependent, um, cancers, weight gain is often more of a problem than weight loss. So the drugs that they give you around breast cancer and prostate cancer and, and ovarian, like some of the hormone based cancers can actually cause, um, weight gain. So for some people, it's a different problem. Um, but what I found with chemo for myself anyways, was that yes, I would definitely lose a few pounds as I was doing my three day fast, sometimes up to five or six. Um, but they always came back, um, during that two and a half weeks when I was eating a normal diet to my normal app, mm -hmm. a normal ketogenic diet yeah. to my normal appetite. Okay. Um, and so each, you know, each chemo treatment, I would be within one pound probably of where I was for the chemo before. Yeah. And that was, you know, me eating almost no carbohydrates, um, eating high fat, moderate protein, you know, we eat meat, um, pretty well, every, like every day we right. eat eggs, we have chickens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so eat eggs every day. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it, I mean, I, in, in my deepest heart of hearts, I probably wish I'd lost 20 pounds through cancer <laughs> treatment because I still fight with the same 20 pounds, but, um, but no, I didn't. Now there are lots of people for whom, um, weight loss is a big issue. And a lot of the weight loss of cancer is not actually directly related to nutritional intake. The, the cachexia of cancer or chronic disease is often more related to an inflammatory process um, than it is to just energy. So, you know, our, like I said, the, the RD version of, you know, dealing with cancer was just throwing calories at it in the hopes that people didn't lose weight, but, um, but it's a much more complicated process than that, um, actual cancer cachexia and just throwing calories at it doesn't work. So I, I mean, I do have a chapter in the book that says, you know, with, when fasting is not right for you and cachexia, if you're in actively in cachexia or severely underweight, um, those probably aren't uh, good indicators. But on the other hand, if you do even a bit of fasting and you protect your healthy cells and you don't get five days of nausea after chemotherapy, then you will eat better. Right. And, you know, so you'll, you'll end up not losing as much weight as you would if you were nauseous and vomiting for five days. Yeah. From the chemo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From affecting those healthier cells that weren't in stealth mode. Right. Yeah. Good. And you're sharing so much good information. I wanted to wrap up this conversation. Um, you have a part in your book is cancer is a chronic disease. And we, we often think of, you know, you're going through cancer treatments and then you're in remission. So can you speak on that paradigm versus cancer as a chronic disease? Well, I mean, cancer used to be a death sentence, right? You know, it's like you get cancer. Okay. You know, you might get it slowed down or you might get it stopped for a while, but it'll come back and it'll kill you. And now cancer is, can be treated more like a, um, more like diabetes or, you know, eating a healthy heart diet or, you know, those sorts of things where you actually make lifestyle changes to, um, to keep the disease in a, a manageable place. Right. Um, so 
basically, if you are post cancer treatment and, you know, quote unquote, in remission, you're probably wanting to look at things in your life that are going to help to um, discourage any cancer cells from reestablishing, right? Um, when I finished chemo, my doctor said to me, basically, you're in either group A or group B. And in group A, we bought them all with the chemotherapy, and you will not have a remission. And, you know, after about five years, if you haven't had a remission, then your chance of having cancer goes down to the same as everybody else in the population, which is, you know, about 5% or something. Um, but it's not likely to be related to the one you've already had. And do you mean if a reoccurrence? B, Sorry, do yeah. you mean a re okay, reoccurrence? Yeah. Okay. So if you're in group B, then there were some cells that were resistant to what we did. And they will come back and they'll come back stronger because they were resistant to the first ones, right? Um, so you really, I mean, I'm hopeful that I'm in group A. I'm three years out this month from the end of chemotherapy. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing great. Yeah. Um, but I live my life in a way that does not make it easy for cancer to maybe get a hold again. Yeah. So in that way, I don't, I don't live in ketosis, but I eat a healthy whole foods based animal foods based, um, low carbohydrate diet mm -hmm. with the occasional excursion into, right. you know, something else because life happens. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I make sure that my environment is relatively clean. Um, I, I stay away from a lot of processed foods. I particularly stay away from um, industrial seed oils and, you know, and commercial candy type sugars um, and beverages. If, if nothing else, yeah. quit with the pop soda. Sorry. In the U S it's soda. <laughs> I, I call it pop. Maybe yeah. I'm weird. I'm in the Midwest. Yeah. I, I still call it pop. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. So eating a healthy life or eating a healthy sort of more whole foods based diet, lots of vegetables, lots of good quality meats. Um, you know, I eat as close to my local area as I can. And I am lucky enough to live, like I said, on the Bruce Peninsula where there's farmers who have, you know, they sell meat from their front porch and awesome. I have chickens in the backyard. And, um, you know, my vegetables in the winter still all come from California and Chile, but you know, it's Canada. So, um, and, uh, and I just, I, I try and be physically active and I don't take unnecessary medications. I take no supplements except vitamin D in the winter, which I think everybody should be on. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so I try and live as clean as I can. And, uh, and like I say, when, when treatment was over, there was nothing I didn't need to go on on any follow-up medications or anything. A lot of people with breast cancer will be on a hormone suppressor for five or six years yeah. afterward. Um, it was, it was not recommended for me. So, so yeah, so life just kind of goes back to, um, to what it was before, except that you now have this amazing life experience behind you yeah. of the cancer treatment and the things I found out. And the fact that I was, I was angry about the, nobody's talking about this. Like, mm -hmm. this is really powerful. Yeah. This is, you know, not only the, the physical stuff you can do, but also the mental stuff that you can do around cancer. 
And that's why the title says kick-ass attitude yeah. because I really wanted to get that kind of spiritual um, psychological aspect in there as well, that, that we don't need to go into cancer as a, as a helpless victim that just sort of says, okay, doc, do me what you want, you know, and we don't need to go into it as a warrior. That's like in battle mode all, all the time. Cause that's incredibly stressful. Right. So we need to approach it from a, um, a perspective of self-love, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, and, and that's something else that I know I'm rambling on, but I love um, it. Yeah, that's fine. That I didn't realize before is that cancer is not a foreign invader. It's not like a bacteria or, you know, a, an injury that you get from outside. Cancer is yourself. It's your own cells. They're misguided. They've gone off on the wrong path. Um, but they are yourself. And I look at it as sort of the Marie Kondo tidying up sort of aspect of, you know, if something in your life is not serving you, you can thank it for its part in your life and let it go. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I have approached my, my mental um, attitude towards cancer is that I love this incredible body. I don't feel in, betrayed by this body at all. Um, it has like, I've, I've rocked this process really. Yeah. And now I have the strength to share what I know. Um, and I still, I, I love my life and I love my, my physical body. And I still, I've always said, and I still say that I plan to live to 95 and die with my boots on. Well, this has been such a wonderful, informative conversation. Um, There was a part in your book. Do you mind if I read that first part as we wrap it up? Absolutely. Go ahead. All right. So there's a partner book I wanted to share with everyone and I have it pulled up and it's from the Marianne Williamson quote, one of your all time, one of your longtime favorites, he said, and it's called our deepest fear. So our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. And I might cry, sorry. (laughs) We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We're all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Like that's so beautiful. And like, that's like right at the beginning of the book. So you just know that you're just coming from such a great place and, Um, I think that people listening to this interview know that, you know, your stuff, um, personally and professionally. So thank you so much for, you know, letting your light shine and going through this, um, and sharing your experience. So can you let our listeners know where they can learn more about you and grab your book? Absolutely. Um, so I have a website, it's just my name, Martha Tettenborn.com. Um, the, you land on the, the page that is the blog because I started the blog before I wrote the book. Uh, But there's links on there to go to the book as well. And there's links to pages of evidence. And there's a work with me link if you're um, 
listeners are at all interested in pursuing the cancer doula sort of um, aspect of being able to talk to me. But the very first blog post I ever wrote was the fasting protocol itself. So, and if you sign up to um, put in your email address, then it downloads a one page copy of the fasting protocol. So it's, it's out there for everybody. Perfect. Thank you so much, Martha. Congratulations on almost three years, uh, cancer free. Um, That's amazing. Thanks for sharing your story and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Reshape Your Health podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a rating and review, and don't forget to tell a friend. To learn more and connect online, check out the links in the show notes.